remind everyone about. We have the uh, Camperete garage sale coming up this weekend, and that's going to be out at Grace Bible Church. I'm sure you'll remember this. It's 13700 Schroeder Road, and Schroeder Road is there, there's a, <coughs> is right off of 249, just north of Willowbrook Mall. I think you have to, if you're coming from down here, you actually have to cross, or you have to get off of 249. If you go, I think if you take that overpass over 1960, you miss the turnoff to Schroeder. What? Oh, so next exit. They do have an exit there. Okay. And the schedule is that they're going to be, and they need some help. So if you want to help, you can go over there yesterday or today. But if you miss that, <laughs> you can go tomorrow from 4 to 9 p.m. They need sorting, pricing, tabling, and then Thursday from 4 to 7 p.m., same thing, and then on um on Friday, May 2nd, from 8 a.m. to 12, that's going to be the garage sale in the morning. And then on May 3rd, from 8 a.m. to 12, those are the garage sale days. So they do need some help sorting things out. And then the next event we have coming up is on May the 17th, which is the men's uh, men's prayer breakfast. And that's all that I am aware of. Oh, I want to give a little report, something we need to be praying about. This situation in Kiev is really getting uh, quite dangerous, quite out of hand. There have the the, the Grivna, which is their uh, currency, is is just in free fall. Things are getting more more expensive every single day because of the unsettled nature of things there. It's hard to, hard to get some goods, some food, things of that nature. Uh, the gasoline prices are skyrocketing. Natural gas prices would be skyrocketing, but spring and summer are coming, so they, they don't need to heat their homes quite as much. So that's a, that's a good deal. I talked to Eager today. Uh, Eager's a former student of Jim Myers. He's now uh, part of the pastoral staff at what's called the Christmas Church in, in Jatomer. He told me that uh, according to his contacts in the police department in Jatomer, that <clears throat> what they're hearing is that Russian troops, nobody else is reporting this, Russian troops are massing on the uh, Belarusian, but on the Belarusian side of the uh, uh, of the border. That's on the north. Usually, all the talk that you hear is what's going on in the far east. Hear about what's going on uh, yesterday in Kharkov. The Jewish mayor was shot in the back. Maybe that was the day before they had surgery yesterday. He's hanging on by a thread. Eager commented that he really wasn't a nice man and he wasn't a good good leader or good mayor. He originally was pro-Russian. Now he's kind of switched sides. They think the pro-Russian forces shot him. He told me that uh, in in the cities in Lugansk, in Donetsk, and in Kharkov, they have prayer tents set up where the Christians are going down in the city center and praying, but the pro-Russian forces are coming down there pointing their rifles at them, threatening them, intimidating them, uh, telling them they're going to kill them, all of these things, forcing them to scatter. So this is uh, uh, really getting uh, getting bad. This is in <clears throat> in the eastern part. You know, that's not where Kiev is. Get out a map. You all should be getting maps out every day, looking and familiarizing yourself with this geography. Because when World War III breaks out, centering on Ukraine, you don't want to be like your grandparents or your parents wondering, where in the world is Poland? Or your 
or when you were sitting there as a high school going, where's Vietnam and trying to find it down in the Caribbean somewhere. So uh, be familiar with these places because this is going to be on the news news quite a bit. So we need to be praying for them. They have lots of opportunities to witness, lots of opportunities to um, uh, pray, and and the churches, the evangelical churches are filled all the time for prayer meetings. Nobody's staying home. They're, they're, everybody's showing up. More people are showing up for prayer meetings than anything else, but everybody's showing up all the time. It's too bad we have to wait for some kind of national crisis before people wake up and start showing up at church. So, anyway, be in prayer for them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for the fact that we can come to you and know that you hear our prayers, you answer us. Father, we're very distressed, concerned about our Friends, missionaries in, in uh, Ukraine, praying for the Myers, pray for those who are students and graduates of the school, praying for Igor and Julia and the children, praying for wisdom on their part, pray for their courage in the face of opposition, praying for them in terms of their physical material needs as the economics deteriorate. And, Father, we pray that we might do whatever we can in looking for ways to help them. And most importantly, right now, Eager says just to pray. And so we pray, and we know that if you're for us, who can be against us? Father, we also pray for us and our nation that we might be mindful of the fact that we have a runoff election coming up. It's important for us to be involved and important for us to be aware of the issues. Father, we pray for our nation that there might be a turnaround uh, this year. We pray that you would... Hold back the forces of evil and restrain them that would seek to destroy the freedoms of this nation and that you would restrain those in, who are in positions of power from carrying out their nefarious schemes. Father, we pray for us that we might be faithful students of your word and that we might come to internalize it and make it part of our everyday thinking and understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study on dispensations, God's plan for the ages. And we're going to begin looking tonight at the first dispensation, the first covenant, which I call it the creation covenant. Uh, It is usually referred to by the nomenclature that uh, Schofield gave it, which is the Edenic covenant. But we'll begin with that. We looked at the covenants. We saw that there are three Gentile covenants, two of which are basically modifications of that original Edenic or 
creation covenant. Each time there is a deterioration of the human race as a result of sin, so there's a modification of the first covenant that occurs in Genesis 3, that's the Adamic covenant, then everything just uh, deteriorates to the point where man's th- God observes that man's thoughts are evil continuously. So he judges the human race with the worldwide flood, and then he makes a new covenant, revision of the previous covenant with Noah. Uh, there's a failure at the Tower of Babel. The Noahic covenant continues in effect, but God determines to work through a new group, uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise is given to Abraham that God is giving him a piece of real estate, uh, the land promise, which is expanded later on, the seed, and that they will be a worldwide blessing. These are eternal, unconditional covenants, and they, they are not ever taken away from the Jewish people. The one covenant that is conditional or temporary is the Mosaic covenant. Now, last time we looked at the fact that as you look through history, there are basically four ages From creation, there's the age of the Gentiles, which ends with the call of Abraham. That includes three dispensations, the dispensation of innocence, conscience, and human government, ending after the Tower of Babel. Then with the call of Abraham, we have the age of Israel. Uh, This ends at the cross. Then we have the church age that begins on the day of Pentecost, ends at the second coming of Christ at the uh, end of the tribulation at the Battle of Armageddon, and then he established his kingdom, the Messianic Age, for a thousand years, and then there'll be a a judgment, the new heavens and the new earth are created, and then we go into eternity future. So that gives us the broad overview. So we're looking at the details of the... Of, of the first dispensation in the age of the Gentiles. Last time I started talking about the angelic conflict. It's important that we relate human history to what happened with the angels. God originally created angelic beings. He created an earth with the uh, angels. He created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. It was a space, as I pointed out last time. This is just an empty space, and there's the heavens, and then there is the earth. The earth was was described as the Eden Garden of God in Ezekiel chapter 28. And it is the original earth of Genesis 1-1. And it is comes under judgment when Lucifer falls and God uh, packs the earth. Well, actually, he turns all the lights off. And because it's in absolute darkness, there's no heat, everything is packed in ice, and this is is a result of the fall of Lucifer. And then God uh, claims, uh, describes the earth as without form, tohu vabohu, without form and void, in Genesis 1-2. It, darkness, is on the face of the deep, three terms that all reverberate with a very negative connotation in most of Scripture. There's something has happened in that original creation, and then there's a restoration. And this is directly connected to the angelic conflict. And this, the fall of Satan is described in passages such as um, Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28. 
during the creation week. It's technically in a form of restoration, but there's original creation that takes place during that time as well, including the creation of the, of the human race. So we can graph it out a different way. There's the original creation. Then there's a judgment on Satan and the fallen angels described in Genesis 1-2. But there's restoration that begins there as the Holy Spirit moves on the face of the deep. Uh, during this gap, there used to be, there was a view called the gap view, which you'll often hear mentioned. And uh, this, actually the fact that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is a very ancient view. It's, it's expressed even in a targum called the Targum of Jonathan back in the 2nd century A.D. But they didn't have a long period of time there. In the early 1800s, a man by the name of Thomas Chalmers, who was one of the foremost theologians in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, decided that the best way to resolve the apparent conflict of time between historic geology that was developing since the mid-1700s and, and the time frame of the Bible, which at that time was very short. At that time, they were thinking the earth wasn't five or 6,000 years old like the Bible said. It was more like 40, 50, 60,000 years. So they weren't squeezing a huge number of years in here. Not like today when they want to cram billions of years in here. Uh, so they... They said, well, this is when fossils were formed. This is when uh, all these things took place. Well, fossils are the result of death, and death doesn't come until after Adam's fall. You don't have death as the penalty of Satan. You have spiritual death, but not physical death. Physical death in all of its forms in the animal kingdom are the result of human sin, which occurs in Genesis 3. So the idea that there's fossils, stratification, all these things aren't the result of a judgment that occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. They're the result of the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. And it's interesting that not all, but many people who held to a gap view also held to a limited flood view. See, you don't need a worldwide flood to explain geology, if you all explain it by this gap, supposed gap that occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But if Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 doesn't support this kind of gap, then, then what happens? Furthermore, if all the stratification fossils were formed in Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there would be nothing in the geologic record of what is clearly presented as a worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 6. So the whole idea of the what's called the long, the traditional gap view or the old earth gap view, they, some people put a pre-Adamic race in there to explain Neanderthals and other Stone Age type peoples, all of these things. That was just a way of trying to assimilate to, um, to evolution. Then after Genesis 1-2, you have the restoration seven days in preparation for the new king of the earth, who's, who's Adam. He is in the, he's the representative of God. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, these are passages we looked at last time, not going to look at today, that deal with the fall of Satan. And there's a creation of the, of, of the lake of fire, as indicated in Matthew 25-41, that, um, 
that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a perfect tense verb indicating completed action. So if God has already prepared the lake of fire for the devil and his angels, why didn't he send them there? That's, that's the question. And the answer has to be uh, taken as a result of inference from Scripture and looking at something that explains the different pieces of data that we have related to the role of angels uh, in, in history. And so this is the doctrine of the angelic conflict. And apparently what happened is that Satan raised an objection. That's why he's called Shatan. He's the accuser. He's presented like a, a, a prosecutor against God, claiming that God has done something that violated his integrity. Now, here's a chart to demonstrate or to focus on his integrity. The ten attributes of God that we talk about are in the background. The essence box is sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, and veracity. But integrity focuses on his righteousness. He is righteous and just. He is, tr- he is true. He isn't just the source of truth. He is truth itself, and he is love. These are statements that are clearly made in Scripture. God is love. God is uh, truth. God is holy. These are, these are clear statements from Scripture. So the issue in history, as we see, is the integrity of God. Lucifer challenged that integrity, thinking he could be greater than God, and then he challenged God's punishment, saying that it was unrighteous or unjust, claiming that a God who was really loved could not send his creatures to a lake of fire, that if he was truly loving, it wouldn't be an eternal condemnation, and that the uh, penalty should fit the crime, and it doesn't. So God is going to set up an experiment. One of the way, reasons you conduct experiments is not to find out what will happen, but to demonstrate a known truth. That is one of the meanings of an experiment. So what God is demonstrating through human history is that the creature cannot survive without total dependence on the creature. The most minor infraction leads to chaos and collapse, and that's what's demonstrated in the fall of Adam. And when they ate a piece of fruit, a very innocuous action, then it caused all of the horrors, all of the death, all of the suffering, all of the droughts and poverty and misery that we see. It's all a result of human disobedience to God. And God is demonstrating that in his grace he has a solution to solve that, uh, to solve that problem. So the human race is created to demonstrate the fallacy of Satan's contention. By demonstrating the fallacy of that contention, it vindicates, which means to demonstrate the truth of something, it vindicates the character of God. It proves that God is truly righteous and just. And that was a question that was asked uh, online uh, two or three weeks ago, and uh, I came to a, a conclusion of that at the end of the class last time, but this is what sets it up understanding that that God is demonstrating in history that he is righteous and he is just. And so uh, this is demonstrated through the way in which uh, he allows human volition to act in history. 
demonstrating that when the creature chooses to disobey God, the result is chaos, confusion, misery, and despair. And when man walks in dependence upon God, then there is hope, there is love, and there is a, there's peace, and there's a solution to the problems of man. So the emphasis that uh, the things that are emphasized because of the angelic conflict are the importance of man orienting to the authority of God in trust, in confidence, in contrast to Satan who disobeyed God. That puts authority, which we've been studying on Thursday night in Romans 13, that is why authority is stressed so much in Scripture and authority orientation is stressed so much uh, throughout the uh, throughout the scripture. So this sets up our understanding of the role of angels. And we'll point that out as we go through the through the uh, dispensations is that there are things that happen within each dispensation that are related to this angelic conflict. So God vindicates or exonerates or proves the truth of his character throughout human history in each dispensation he puts his love and his righteousness and his justice on display for everyone to see. He ex- does this by extending a grace salvation to undeserving sinners. No one deserves to be saved. You're a nice person. You've got a great personality. People love you, but you don't deserve to be saved. You violated the righteousness of God. I violated the righteousness of God. If we got what we deserved, we would all be in the lake of fire. Grace means we have an opportunity to change that destiny. We have an opportunity to not work for it, but to trust in the salvation that God provided freely so that we, because we could never earn it or deserve it, so that we could be saved. Through his plan, his righteousness and justice are satisfied by Christ's work on the cross so that because his righteousness or justice are satisfied, he can then freely bless human beings. And then we see that the extent of eternal punishment is shown to be just because of the horrific consequences of sin in human history. For 6,000 years, we've seen these horrible things that have happened because of sin. And what God is showing is that this is all the result of this one simple act of disobedience. Okay, so that gives us a framework now for understanding what happens? Because near the beginning of the very first dispensation, or, or actually what ends the first dispensation, we see this creature show up, a beautiful creature that um, seems uh, very wise and has a very uh, endearing quality and a, an ability to convince uh, the woman to eat of the fruit of the, that has been prohibited, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the understanding of who this creature is then uh, fits back to understanding this angelic conflict, that this is Satan who is looking on this new creature that is to be the representative of God and the recipient of all of his grace and all of his blessings, and Satan wants to foil God's plan and to destroy it, not knowing that whatever happens, it's going to demonstrate and vindicate the justice of God. So we have the first, uh, we're going to have the first dispensation, and it begins with a covenant, a covenant. And so we have, this is the uh, next major topic, the, the Edenic covenant or the creation covenant. 
creation covenant, the scripture for this is found in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and then Hosea 6, 7. Now, some people challenge whether this is actually a covenant. So what I want to do is demonstrate that this is a covenant. If it walks like a duck, the quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a chicken, right. There you go. That's why you're from East Texas, Claude. It's a duck. This is a covenant because it has the voc- it has all the characteristics of a covenant, and there is one passage that refers to it as a covenant, which I'll show you. But this is one of those things the scholars get all wrapped around the axle on because the word covenant isn't actually used until you get to Genesis chapter 9. And once you get into the flood event with the first mention of the word covenant, uh, I think it's actually used in Genesis uh, 6. With, uh, in relation to Noah, that God will make his covenant with him. But that's the first time it's mentioned. So neither Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 are identified as covenants. But I'll show you that, that if it looks like a duck and cracks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's got to be a duck. And so these have to be covenants, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that. So what you have in a covenant is you have commands. You have stipulations. You have responsibilities that are spelled out. And, and what is called a royal grant covenant, and because this is, does not involve sin on the human race yet, this is more akin to a royal grant covenant, that what happens is the sovereign or the king uh, grants or gives something to a subject. But in the process, he also is going to give responsibilities to that subject so that he will enjoy the blessings that are being freely given to him. Now, in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, we have several commands that are laid out. Uh, all of these are in Genesis 1, 28. There are five. They're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea. This is the mission statement given to the human race. They are created in the image and likeness of God. As God said in 1, uh, 27, they're created in the image and likeness of God, which means they are to be representatives of God. They're made like a finite representation of God. They represent his, his essence, not in an infinite sense, but in a finite sense, and they are to rule over the creation. Now, this is not a politically correct verse. In fact, this is one of the most despised and hated verses by greenies, by that is, by environmentalists in all of the Bible, because as far as they're concerned, this is the marching orders to despoil and destroy the planet. But see, this is given to man in perfection, and man's responsibility is to take care of the planet, not to despoil the planet, not to abuse it, but to responsibly use the resources that God has given to him. So he's to live on the planet. He's to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Uh, This runs against the uh, 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 anti-population people who want to limit the growth of the human race and think that we're overpopulated. You fly out over places like this last week. I flew up to uh, Lubbock, Texas to uh, teach on Friday night and Saturday morning and flying over the uh, Texas panhandle Boy, is it dry and barren up there. My goodness. I'm, I'm afraid that we're on the verge of a dust bowl. They have, uh, Lubbock has already drained one reservoir. They're down quite a bit on another reservoir. I talked to a buddy of mine today in Abilene, and they've only got 11% of water left in the main um, 
in the main reservoir for Abilene, and several other reservoirs are down. And the basic uh, aquifers that are up in that area are all going down. And this drought, we've had a break some down on the Gulf Coast, but they've had no break in six or seven years. Uh, You probably don't know this because I don't talk about it much, but every year about this time I go fishing with an old friend of mine from college up in Abilene. We're probably not going to even go fishing this year because there's only one lake left in the area, and I'm talking about within two-hour drive of his house. So we're talking about, you know, within about 140 miles of where he lives just south of Abilene. There's only about one lake left that has a, has a boat ramp that, can, that you can use to put the boat in the water. And there's no relief. He said they've had an inch and a half of rain in Abilene, so far this year, normally they've had six. Uh, this is what was set up the Dust Bowl in, in the, the late 20s. This is, and with the economic situation in this country, and California's in as bad a shape. Um, this is extremely, extremely serious. Um, so it looks like the area is overpopulated, not enough water for everybody. But God says we're to fill the earth. And there are actually a lot of areas. In fact, somebody asked me, Andy, Andy Woods was flying up with me. He said, do you think we're overpopulated? I said, well, it was overpopulated when the Comanches were there because the Comanches would just camp out in an area and would trash it. And then as soon as it got all trashed, they didn't ever clean anything up. They just went to the next area. And over a period of a couple of hundred years, that was trashing out the area. So it was getting overpopulated with just the uh, nomadic uh, Plains Indian tribes in the area. But once you had the advance of technology and the ability to drill wells and do other things, then that area could uh, could uh, support a much larger population. So population density is directly related to technology and learning how to use the natural resources that God put in place uh, in order to support the population. So man is supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the air. That was their mission statement from the first day of creation. Secondly, they were to subdue the earth. The word for subdue means in the cow stem to bring something into bondage, to subdue something or force something into submission, uh, to dominate it. In the PL, it means to subdue something. In the HIFIL, as it is here, is to bring something into, uh, into bondage. This is a term- terminology that is extremely strong and not politically correct. The human race is to properly control and dominate the planet. According to environmentalists, we are the enemy. We're not the friend of the planet. But God set us up to rule over and dominate everything, which we've been learning to do all through the centuries. So this is the, uh, this is the beginning. This is the command, part of the covenant responsibilities. And so the test is, of course, going to be related to these imperatives. In Genesis 2.15, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And this terminology, to cultivate and to keep, or to guard and to keep, are from the Hebrew words yarad and shamar. And and shamar has the idea of watching over, guarding something, and uh, yarad has the idea of serving God. So it's not just cultivating. It brings in this whole idea of serving God and working. Uh, it's related to the word for being a servant, uh, keeping it, guarding it. From what would it be guarded? What did they need to guard it from? I think there's an implication there that they needed to watch over the planet because there was an enemy, and that enemy is going to be introduced in the third chapter.
only one prohibition, and that's the prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of uh, good and evil, and with a penalty that will come into effect immediately, and that is spiritual death. Because they didn't die for another 900 years physically, it indicates that this penalty was a spiritual penalty. Now let me address the question related to, is this a covenant? Is this actually a, a covenant? Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Just the first part of the verse. There's a comparison made here. The top verse is New King James Version. The bottom verse is the New American Standard. Notice the, the New King James translates it, but like men. Actually, it would have been better if they had said mankind or the human race. It's not talking about male males in the plural. It's talking about the human race, Possibly. Hosea 6, 7 translates it like Adam, like the individual. In Hebrew, the word Adam is the word for mankind, or it's also the proper name for Adam. So the question here is, is this comparing them to mankind as a whole, or is this a comparison to something Adam did in the garden? Now, if you look at this verse, I want to point out a couple of things. There's a comparison with Adam, that first syllable in Adam is the Hebrew preposition meaning uh, of comparison meaning like or as. So there's a comparison to Adam. And so Adam is the uh, archetype, and those that are being compared to the archetype are the they. The they in the plural refers to Israel. This is in a section dealing with the condemnation of Israel. And it says, but like Adam, they, that is the Israelites, transgressed. And then it's translated in most English versions, the covenant. But Hebrew doesn't have a definite article in front of the noun berit there for covenant. Now, that's really important. It's, if if um, like men... They transgress, transgress the covenant. So there's a comparison there. If there's an article there, then it would be that mankind translated covenant A, the covenant, and the Israelites also trans, transgressed the same covenant. See, if the article's there, it's only talking about one covenant. That's really important. And it's saying that Adam translated that covenant, or transgressed that covenant, and the Israelites also transgressed that covenant. But there's no article there. It's just a noun, and it could be a covenant. And so there's, there's a comparison between Adam transgressing a covenant and Israel in the same way also transgressed a covenant. The point of comparison is the transgression of a covenant, not that it's the same covenant. And so that's, that's important to identify that because there's no covenant that both the Jews and the Gentiles were accountable to. Gentiles weren't accountable to the Mosaic Covenant. Only Jews were. The covenant in question that they violated is the Mosaic Covenant. Gentiles, Adam, mankind, the human race, was never expected to obey the Mosaic Covenant. That was a covenant that was restricted only for Israel. So 
it can't be mankind with the covenant. So it, 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 it completely voids or negates the interpretation that this isn't talking about Adam, the individual. Adam is the most likely understanding of this word, Adam, and it's saying that Adam transgressed a covenant in the garden. And just as Adam transgressed a covenant, so the Israelites have transgressed a covenant. Just as Adam was came under divine judgment, so Israel's coming under divine judgment. That's the point of comparison. So Hosea 6, 7, when it talks about transgressing a covenant here, is indicating that Adam transgressed a covenant. So even though covenant isn't mentioned, the word isn't used in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, that doesn't mean there wasn't a covenant there. So it's very clearly that there was a covenant there. The covenant expresses the responsibilities of the steward. So you also had that word that's used there, uh, 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 to cultivate, which means has to do with being a servant. And so cultivating and uh, has to do with being a servant. What's the role of a steward in a dispensation? To serve God. And so this indicates that in that first dispensation, the dispensation of innocence, that there was a responsibility designated to the uh, to the steward of that dispensation, and so there's a um, uh, the covenant is given. The penalty is stated in Genesis two seventeen of spiritual death. That the instant they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would immediately become spiritually dead, and this means that they would have a separation from God. This is confirmed then when we look at the immediate results of what happens when God came to walk in the garden with them, uh, they ran and hid. Immediately after they ate from the fruit, something changed. It didn't wait. It immediately took place. Their eyes were open in verse 7. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And they hid from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, Where are you? And they said, Well, we heard the sound of you coming in the garden, and we were afraid. Well, they'd never been afraid before. So everything changed. And as a result of that, they were, they were spiritually dead. And then God is going to lay down the consequences starting in chapter 3. Well, let's just go through the basic points here in terms of the dispensation. The time period that it covers is from Genesis 128 to actually that should be uh, Genesis 3, 6, because by verse 7, they're spiritually dead. So I need to correct that, that slide to 3, 7. Make a point in my notes here. To Genesis 3, 7. The central person is Adam. He is the responsible one. That doesn't mean that Eve or her decision is irrelevant doesn't mean she's a second-class citizen. Her role is to be a, an aider, a helper for the man, remember? So she has a vital role. The only other person in Scripture that's really designed as a, as a servant is God. That noun, aider, is applied to God. We sang about this Sunday morning, hymn number two. Here I place my Ebenezer. My, uh, it's a stone of help because God helped the Israelites in that battle. God is our Aetzer. 
So this is a very high calling for Eve and a high calling for women. But Adam was the designated head of the human race so that it was his decision that had the real consequence, not hers. The term for this dispensation is innocence because it focuses on the fact that they are free from legal guilt. If we think about the angelic conflict, God tried the angels. He put Satan and the fallen angels, the third of the angels that followed him on trial. He rendered a verdict, eternity in the lake of fire. Satan appeals that verdict and says, uh, you're not fair, you're not loving, you're not just. God says, hold on a minute, we won't throw you in the fire yet. We're going to demonstrate why I'm just, righteous, and loving. God chose to do that. And so this, in a sense, we fit within a legal framework. That's why we talk about terms, salvations in, 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 in courtroom terms, righteousness, justice, imputation of righteousness, justification, confession of sin. All of these are legal terms that come out of the courtroom. And so the concept of calling this innocent isn't a term referring to people who are naive or people who are uninformed. Uh, or it's referring to people who are legally not guilty, who are legally innocent of any guilt or any crime. Their responsibility is to guard and keep the garden and not to eat, to be fruitful, multiply, etc. The test is to be obedient and not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their failure is that they disobeyed. Eve ate first. As Adam would tell the boys later on, your mother ate us out of house and home. Eve ate first, Adam ate second. The old baseball joke, first mention of baseball in the Bible. Eve ate first, Adam ate second, and the prodigal son came running home. Uh, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, the prodigal son came running home, and Daniel got sent to the dugout. So that's disobedience. The result, immediate divine judgment of spiritual death, spiritual condemnation. And then we have grace. Every dispensation, there's a display of God's love and grace. Not only is he, does he, is he consistent with his righteousness in condemning disobedience, but he also provides a solution out of his grace from his love. And the grace is the promise of a redeemer. This comes across in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will provide redemption and defeat the seed of the serpent. So that the gospel message is not, as a number of dispensational writers have said, this is where we're going to differ with some of the great fathers of dis, the, let's say the, the, uh, um, Ryrie, Chafer, Walberg, some of those. And by the way, Dr. Dwight Pentecost went to be with the Lord last night. I was thinking about that today. Dr. Pentecost is well known. He wrote his doctoral dissertation and then published it. It was one of the first books I really paid attention to when I would get in, go into a pastor's library. It was a big, thick book, about two and a half inches thick, called Things to Come. And, and, um, and it is just a great basic book dealing with dispensationalism and eschatology. And he has had a remarkable career, taught for over 50 years. He's still teaching classes at, at Dallas Seminary up until this semester. And he just turned 99 two days ago. I thought about that, and I realized that when I first met Dr. P, 
Uh, he and his brother both taught it on the faculty of Dallas. When I first met Dr. P, he was my age. I thought he was an old man. I guess I'm an old man. But he was, he was great. He was wonderful. His wife died a number of years ago, and he has lived in student housing there. He was just everybody's grandpa for the, for the uh, last, I think, 15 years or so. And uh, he had throat cancer, still was kept teaching into this semester, and uh, had to go in for some surgery. And I guess that was just a little too much for him. And uh, he went to, he was in hospice care the last two or three days and went to be with the Lord last night. One of the great fathers of dispensationalism. But the older dispensationalism, dispensationalists, uh, people like Bullinger, Clarence Larkin, uh, probably going back to, uh, I'm not sure about Schofield, but some of the older ones, clearly believed there was more to the promise of a Redeemer than just a vague promise of salvation. But when you get into that middle era in the 20th century with Ryrie and, and, and uh, Walbert, uh, Pentecost, it was more of a vague promise of salvation. But I think it's really clear with all the Messianic promises in, um, in the Old Testament that it's, it's more specific than that. In fact, Jim Myers and I have talked about this for probably 10 or 12 years, and he's working on a paper for a publication that's supposed to come out on how people in the Old Testament were saved. And a recent article came out in a journal about two years ago by um, uh, Walt, um, his name just slipped my mind, Walt Kaiser. And he argued for this, a much more specific understanding of the gospel. And I called up Michael Rydell. Nick, you watched a video from Michael a few months ago from pre-trib. He was the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute and done tremendous work on Messianic prophecies. And I asked him the question, I said, how do you think people in the Old Testament were saved? And he said, well, he said, for many years I, I, I agreed with Walbert and, and uh, Pentecost and uh, that they just, need, they just had sort of a vague sense. They believed the promise of God, nothing more specific than that. He said, but as a result of all the work I've done on the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, I think that at the very least they had an understanding that God of God's promise that the seed of the woman would solve the problem of sin, and they had to believe at least that much. How much more they understood, we don't know, but they had to believe in a Messianic Redeemer who was the seed of the woman who would solve the problem of sin. So that begins, as we'll see when we get into Genesis 3.15. Okay, so that's the first dispensation. Begins with the creation covenant. That's the new revelation that gives the test, the responsibility. We see the failure, and then that ends the first dispensation, the dispensation of innocence. As a result of that, there's a new covenant that comes in. And this covenant is really a modification. The last thing we'll do before we finish tonight is I'll show you a comparison between the commands and circumstances of, of, the, of the first covenant, of the, of the first two chapters of Genesis, and the penalty, showing that there's this connection. The Adamic covenant is really the outline of the consequences of the judgment of sin. This is so important. Keep this in mind. The, the penalty for sin is spiritual death. Genesis 3 is not the penalty for sin. It's the consequences of the penalty for sin. Because they're spiritually dead, because the earth has now come under corruption, Romans chapter 8, the earth is groaning under corruption. 
because of sin, there are now consequences that reverberate through the through geology, through physics, through biology. All of these things changed. All the animals were supposed to be uh, herbivores prior to the fall. But now we have carnivores. There's a big difference between their dental structure, between uh, their whole intestinal systems, everything. There, there's a change. This is going to reverse when we get into the millennial kingdom because they're going to go back to eating grass. Remember, the wolf and the lamb lie down together and the, without the lamb lying in the wolf's belly. See, today they lie down together, but one's inside the other one. That'll change in the millennial kingdom. And we don't, we're not going to have that. So there's a change. And these are laid out. These changes are laid out in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. But the promise, I mean the commands to be fruitful and multiply don't change. The commands to be fruitful and multiply to subdue the earth don't change. In fact, they're, they're not repeated in Genesis 3, but they are repeated after the flood. So those commands are still in effect. So here we see the, the, um, the consequences, and they're spelled out in terms of four groups, or three groups, rather, the serpent, the woman, and the man. So the Lord God said to the serpent, now this is a real serpent, There is a stream of thought within evangelicalism going back to the Reformation, including John Calvin, but they got it because they were learning Hebrew and bad theology from rabbis in the Reformation. And that is that the serpent wasn't wasn't Satan. The serpent was just a snake. You'll find that today. In fact, there are several faculty members at Dallas Seminary who teach that. Revelation tells us, no, this serpent, the dragon, the serpent of old, is the devil. That's Revelation chapter, I think it's chapter 12 or 13. It's very clear. But you get this narrow concept of exegesis today that dominates that, that, oh, you have to go along, you can't look beyond Genesis 3 to find the meaning of the terms in Genesis 3. People in Gen- people who were reading this between Adam and Noah didn't know anything about Revelation 12 or 13, so how would they know that this was the serpent? It's obvious. You read Hebrews 11, you read other passages in the Bible, you know that these people in the Old Testament knew a lot of stuff that, that we weren't told about, even in Genesis. We may be told, we're informed about it in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham really understood the doctrine of resurrection. You can't get that out of Genesis 22. But he understood it. Just because Genesis doesn't tell us that they understood something doesn't mean God didn't reveal it to it and they didn't know it. So the serpent is addressed. God says, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle. That implies that the cattle are also cursed. You see, there's a comparison there. You're cursed more than, the, than the, all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So see, all of a sudden, his, his way of locomotion is changed. There's a physiological change that takes place in the serpent, as there are physiological changes that took place in the rest of the animal kingdom. There's going to be a dynamic in the relationship between the serpent and human beings as well. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. By the way, that verse referring to the Satanist serpent is in Revelation 12.9. Um, the serpent 
It says, the serpent between your seed and her seed, he, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise you on your head. Now, a head wound is a fatal wound. For many years I taught the head wound's a fatal wound, the heel wound isn't a fatal wound. If you're bitten by a cobra on the heel, a black mamba on the heel, you die. Okay? What's the issue here? The head is an authority figure. Kephale, all through the scripture, the Greek word for head, refers to authority, headship. So what happens is between your seed, the devil's seed, and her seed, the woman's seed, he, that is the woman's seed, will bruise you on the head. It's going to destroy your authority. Satan usurped authority from Adam in the garden. I mean, from, from, yeah, from Adam in the garden. Adam was set over creation as the authority. So that authority that certain Satan usurped is going to be destroyed by the seed of the woman. And the statement, you shall bruise his heel, indicates death to the, death to the, um, death to the, to the seed of the woman. But it didn't keep him down. So you can't keep a good man down. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And so he dies. He dies on the cross. He dies for our sins as a result of Satan's manipulations and his conspiracy, but that didn't end the story. Now, Genesis 3.15 is is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first hint that God is going to solve the problem of sin through the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.16, he addresses the woman. says um, to the woman, he says, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, in pain, you shall bring forth children. This indicates that now pain and so everything associated with birth comes into effect at the fall. Before that, it wasn't going to have pain. It wasn't going to have all these other things. That's all the consequence of sin. And we're going to see why in a minute. Because what was she commanded to do? To be fruitful and multiply. Everything they're commanded to do in Genesis 1 and 2 now becomes difficult, challenging uh, because of sin. An obstacle is set in the way. So her, her childbearing is now going to be difficult. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. This isn't the normal word for desire. This is a word, teshuka, which is used in Genesis chapter 4 uh, to describe the way in which sin wants to usurp authority uh, over uh, the person that's being tempted. In Genesis 4, 7, God said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door like a crouching animal ready to pounce. And its desire, it's teshuka, same word. It's teshuka. Its desire is to control you and to dominate you but you shall rule over it. Same words that are used here. Your desire is to control the the husband, but he shall rule over you. The war of the sexes begins right here. Authority conflict within the marriage begins right here. It's because of the sin nature, because you've got two people who are self-absorbed who think that the most important thing in the world is them, themselves. It's all the husband sitting there going, it's all about me. Me, 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 me. And the wife says, you're wrong. It's all about me. And until you say it's all about me too, we're going to have a problem. 
That's what happens. That's why you have marital problems, because of the sin nature. You know, you can take two people who are sinners, and it doesn't matter how wonderful they are. When they're each letting the sin nature control, it's a miserable relationship. But if they're, if it doesn't matter how, how horrible their personalities might be, it doesn't matter how bad their backgrounds may be, but if you have two people who are walking by the Spirit, they can accomplish things. They can love each other because the Holy Spirit's the dynamic. You get one person, though, who makes a decision to walk according to the sin nature and the other person wants to walk according to the Spirit, there's a word for it and begins with T, R-O-U-B-L-E, trouble. And until they're both walking in agreement, it's going to be a problem. Now, you can have a really happy marriage if both people have compatible sin natures and they're both living according to their sin nature. They can have a lot of fun. Party, party, party all the time. They can have a lot of fun. It may may glorify themselves. They won't glorify God. They won't have too many problems. But if they don't, I always teach this when I'm, when I'm counseling with a couple that's going to get married. Is, is you, have you seen the other person really in carnality for a while? If you haven't seen that, you don't know what you're in for. Don't get married. Don't even think about it until you see what the other person is like for a period of time, not just an hour or a minute, but for a period of time when they're just out of fellowship. Because if you can't live with their sin nature, you don't want to be married to them. If your sin natures aren't compatible, it's going to be miserable because there are going to be times in every marriage when one person or the other one lets their sin nature get out of control. And when that happens, if you can't live with their sin nature, you won't last. So it's I call it the doctrine of the compatibility of the sin natures. I don't know anybody else who teaches that. It's just a dose of reality. So this is a situation. There's going to be a problem in the marriage. And at, then to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Now, man, this doesn't mean it's always wrong to listen to your wife. Sometimes she's a lot smarter than you are. Sometimes she senses things that you don't. So sometimes it's, it's just good humility, and it's a good lesson to pay attention to your wife. Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree. Every man's going to call me tomorrow and really send me nasty emails. I know it. Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So what happens? The, what was the area of his responsibility? Tend, work, and keep the garden. Avad. Work and keep the garden. And he's to serve God by working the garden. Now what's the garden going to do? Is the garden going to help him? Before, there was no problem. No weeds, no thistles. It didn't dry out. He didn't have to go out there, water the plants, water the tomato plants every morning like I do. I hate that. Every morning, pull out the weeds, weed the garden every single day, all summer long. It's the routine. you got to do it. Adam didn't have to do that. There was nothing in the soil or in the garden that resisted what he was trying to do. In fact, it, it was so cooperative it would just burst forth in blooms and productivity. Now it's got thorns and thistles, and you're going to work by, and you're going to make earn your food by the sweat of your face. Verse 19. Okay, as I wrap up, let's look at the comparison and contrast between the Edenic responsibility, what's laid out in the creation covenant, 
and the judgment, the consequences. Okay, first of all, they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. What's the judgment? It won't be easy. There's going to be pain in childbirth. In Eden, the responsibility for the wife was to be an aitzer, to be a helper. Now what's she going to do? She wants to dominate and control. She wants to wear the pants in the family. She wants to run the show. She doesn't want to help him. She wants him to help her. They're responsible to subdue the earth. Now the earth is cursed. There are thorns and thistles and weeds and droughts and all kinds of problems. The earth is fighting back. They were to rule over the animals, but now the animals are cursed and the animals are fighting back. Every plant was given for food, but now only the plants of the field are for food. There's a restriction now. They were to serve and guard in Eden, but now they are kicked out. No admittance, not only that, but God surrounds Eden with an army of cherubs. Plural word there. With flaming swords. To keep The flaming sword indicates a death penalty. You try to get in here again, that's going to be it. In Eden, they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now they're spiritually dead, and it will yield physical death. So this shows that there's a connection between this. It's a modification of the original covenant. There's a direct tie-in between the positive commands of Genesis 1 and 2 and the negative consequences laid out in Genesis chapter 3. So that ends the first dispensation and uh, starts the second, and the first covenant starts the second covenant. And then I think I'll just take a minute because it doesn't take long. We'll just run through the basic description. Did I get it in here? No, I didn't. No slide. Okay, I figured I'd stop here, so we won't get it. We'll start with the dispensation of conscience or self-determination next time before we go on. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to be reminded that you have a plan and purpose for history and that you have spelled these things out very clearly in your word. We have responsibilities. We also fail. But in the failure, we also see your grace and your love as you provide the solution for sin. Father, we pray that we might never forget to depend upon your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.